0: welcome to the podcast again with live guitar and it's a little louder today because because i'm here at the house alone so i decided to really crank it up normally it would be time for otas now And they are having some sort of off-season program, but it is actually a digital, virtual kind of thing where they have Zoom meetings. You know, like the rest of us pretty much these days, Zoom meetings are the thing, right? And I joked about it. Speaking of music, on my Twitter feed, at Texans Voice, you can go take a look at that. And I wrote the Quarantine Blues with D.P. Sidhu. And we joked about not being able to get your mic off mute during a Zoom meeting. And I think we're all pretty good at this by now, but sometimes you still forget. Or you're in a Zoom meeting with a bunch of people and somebody forgets. They just start talking. You see their lips moving and nothing's coming out. It's kind of funny. Uh, It does get aggravating after a while. One little thing about Zoom, and I think I mentioned this on the air with uh, Sean Pendergast and Seth Payne. Here's your sales tip or your communication tip. doesn't matter what business you're in. If you really want to drive a point home... During your Zoom meeting, look directly into the camera. Don't look at the faces on the screen because you're not really looking into their eyes. It's not like a regular audience where making eye contact is the thing. The way to make eye contact during a Zoom meeting is through the camera directly. You won't see yourself. You'll just be looking in that black hole of the camera. But trust me, your eyes will be looking right into theirs when they're looking at your image, and that's what you want. Okay? It's just like being on television. Your TV anchor man, your camera, your person on camera they look right at that black hole of the camera it's easy for them to make eye contact because it's not a real eye and it looks so compelling to just look right into the camera if you see no matter who you watch at night no matter what news channel when you're seeing these conversations go on they're looking right into a camera not at a face they're looking at a camera and it just looks good to the audience that way anyway that's my tip for the day let's talk some texans football shall we Now, since it is time for the offseason program and they're getting all the new guys up to speed, I talked to Brandon Cooks the other day. You can find that conversation around here someplace on Texans All Access. I believe we ran that on Friday, and we have the longer conversation with me for the season ticket members. He's a really good guy, by the way. I love all these new players and how they are with the media. Randall Cobb, Brandon Cooks, David Johnson, they're great. So uh, check that stuff out on the website, HoustonTexans.com. And they're all getting acclimated via Zoom as well as they possibly can. Obviously, those guys have the playbook. They're studying it so they can get right into it whenever they can get back to work. But I thought I'd take a look at uh, the way OTAs have been and rewind a bit in Texans history and discuss what we've seen in the past during this time of year. I I think it's pretty interesting. And I'm not going to start at the beginning and work my way up. I'm going to bounce around here. And when I think of OTAs, it's always such an interesting time of year because it's another example of things aren't always what they appear to be. And sometimes you do see early warning signs or early really positive indicators of how the season could be. Sometimes you see stuff and you think, ooh, is it going to be like this? And it's not like that at all. I mean, Deshaun Watson is our quarterback now. And by the way, somebody... Somebody put the highlights of Watson's rookie game at NRG against the Tennessee Titans, that offensive explosion the Texans had. And I was watching those highlights, and I thought, man, oh, man, this guy. I mean, as a rookie, he was just lighting it up. And it's so exciting just to think about year four here. It's year four in the Watson era and how blessed we are to have him. Anyway, Watson and OTAs, what what was that like? What was that like going out to the fields at the Houston Methodist Training Center And watching Deshaun in his first action as a professional player. And I remember he was with the third team. As you all recall, Tom Savage was here. And it was going to be Savage, the guy, until they drafted Watson. But Savage, Brandon Whedon, and Deshaun Watson. And there we were. And it was so interesting to watch them operate. And as far as Deshaun went, he was with the third team. And... I remember the first time I saw him, I thought, okay, you know, he looks he looks okay. I mean, you, you know how talented he is, and just a rookie out there with some pros. So let's just give this time. It wasn't more than a week or two later where you started to see, oh my gosh, this guy's so special, you know. And you knew it from college, but you saw it on the pro fields already with the third team. I rem the line I remember myself saying, if I can if I can quote my own lines to myself was. That third team has a lot of swag. I mean, the third team, guys, and we're talking about numerous guys who are practicing on his offensive unit with the third team who are no longer in the National Football League. In fact, most of them might not have been in the National Football League just a few months later. But they looked like they were having a good time, and they were jamming. I mean, they were they were scoring. They were high-flying. They were making big plays. There was vertical throw there were vertical throws of great significance and you just saw the whole thing there and I remember thinking and John Harris and I were talking about it oh boy this is going to be fun to watch how fast will he rise up the depth chart and that that is the prevailing thought of the 2017 OTAs how Deshaun Watson looked as a rookie with that third team And then in training camp, and I'll tell training camp stories when we get to training camp, and please, let's get to training camp. By the way, I have something else on uh, the need to play football a little bit later on in this podcast. But later on when we got to training camp, he was still with the third team when they began at the Greenbrier and quickly worked his way up. There was that time Bill O'Brien put in the third team against the first-team defense, and it was just so much fun to watch Watson rise up that depth chart and make noise In the NFL, in practice, never mind in the games, but just in practice early. Practice, yes. All right, OTAs, I'm not going to do every year, but the year before is significant. Because the year before they had Watson at OTAs and all that I just described, Brock Osweiler, his first action as a Houston Texan. And look, I know that Brock is a punchline in Texans history to many people. And I'll say this about Brock. Look, he he did not pan out, clearly. Did not work out the way you wanted it to, that whole situation. You did go 9-7 and win a playoff game, so that's something, right, with Brock Osweiler. Now, some of the quarterbacking performances were not exactly the greatest we've ever seen. Uh, but I do give him some credit for being able to hang in there for a while. Didn't play up to the uh, potential that he showed in Denver the one year where they went to the Super Bowl, and he had seven starts and went five and two as a starter with the Broncos. But anyway, back to it. I don't want to get into a whole Osweiler perspective here or retrospective, but in OTAs, I remember looking at the offensive performance, and I thought, ooh, Tom Savage looks like he's ahead of Brock Osweiler. And I thought, well, Brock's new to the system. This is a new system to Brock. He's been, you know, he worked with Mike McCoy in Denver as the OC, then with Kubiak, of course. And I thought, well, this is a unique system. And he was talking about how unique it was and how different, how, how much he wanted to get up to speed quickly. And I just remember thinking, man, Savage looks good. Now, Savage is a theme throughout the O'Brien era until he wasn't with the o'brien texans but he was a theme throughout otas and training camp because savage always looked good in practice to me and i think to a lot of people and i think to the coaching staff that's why they held on to him through injuries and situations where he like in 2016 where he had the concussion couldn't perform at the end of the year but they they hung on to him they Did make the move for Watson, obviously, ultimately in the draft. But they always had high hopes for Savage that if he got in there on a consistent basis in real action, that he'd be able to perform because he looked so good in practice. And look, anybody can tell you whatever they want. I went to all the practices I possibly could, and he looked good in practice. Savage threw a beautiful ball, looked good out there on the practice field. And there are guys like that who look good on the practice field. Then you get him into a game situation, and it's not quite the same thing. And we can assign a bunch of different reasons for that, but we don't have to do that right now. But anyway, in 2016, I thought Savage looked ahead of Brock. And in Camp 2, and then we get into the season, and the Texans are winning home games, losing on the road, and it just doesn't look so good in the early part of the Osweiler era. In fact, it never really looked great, right, the offense offense. The comeback against the Colts at home looked good, obviously, but that was about the high water mark of the offense under Osweiler. The defense played great that year; they were number one in the league, actually. As uh, JJ did get hurt that year in year three, but somehow a uh, year three of the um, O'Brien era, but somehow and week three of that season, but the Texans managed to carve out number one ranking in defense status, yardage wise, and get to the playoffs, etc. Uh, 2015 was Mallet and Hoyer duking it out in OTAs, but again, Savage was the third team, and I thought, man, Savage looks just as good, if not better than those guys. I'm serious. That's how I felt at the time, and I'll stick to that. 2014, I don't remember as well as the other years. I know I was out there. Look, I was out there, and Ryan Fitzpatrick looked like Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, making some big plays, maybe some mistakes and things like that, and Savage was a rookie, and at the time, at the time, they still had TJ in OTAs, I want to say, And then they made the move with T.J. out of there, but he rejoined the team the next year, obviously, because T.J. went to the Atlanta Falcons. But uh, remember, they didn't make the move for Mallet until right before the regular season in 2014. Uh, 2013, 2012, 2011, why are these years significant? 2011, no OTAs because it was the lockout. There were no OTAs. And I think that that's a year that, uh, you know, any one of these coaches who lived through that time of the lockout is probably better prepared to handle whatever's coming this year than those who weren't around then. Uh, Bill O'Brien was around then with the New England Patriots in 2011. Lockout, you have no OTAs, no time at all with the players, not Zoom meetings, nothing. And camp starts at the regular time, and they get right to it. And it was a great season for the Texans, as you all know. That year, we talk about it a lot. 2011, the first ever division championship playoff year, and all of that. And Watts' rookie season. They had no OTAs, just a training camp, two weeks, and let's play preseason and go from there. So uh, that was pretty cool. But uh, 2012, 2013. Now I'll bring these years up for this reason. Remember what happened in 2011? And again, we're the topic of today's podcast is basically OTA time, right? And how it all went down in Texans history. Well, in 2011, Schaub gets hurt, as we all know. And the team goes with Yates through the postseason and goes to Baltimore and loses. Well, Schaub has the Liz Franck injury. Is that pronounced correctly? And we go into the off season with Schaub still recovering. So OTAs in 2012, which was a good Texan season at 12-4, and four, of course, the OTAs that year did not feature Shabby. He was not ready to come back yet, so it was Yates out there. And I remember walking over the bridge with Kubiak, and he was just saying, man, we've got to get this offense going. Because the offense in 2012 was not so hot, okay, not so hot during OTAs. They could not get it going against what was going to be an outstanding defense and what was the number two defense the year before. Remember, 2011, number two defense in the NFL, and now Watt in 2012, the offseason, he's coming off that dynamite playoff performance, and everybody's raring to go for 2012, and the Texans got off to an 11-1 and start. The offense, it it looked like the way it should. Offense should always take a little longer to get it going in the offseason and training camp because the timing has got to be there. You know, Andre Ware always says this, defense, you're trying to destroy something. Offense, you're trying to create something. Well, it's harder to create something. It's harder to get that rhythm, that timing, everything you need to be proficient playing NFL offense. So, I'll never forget that that 2012 Yates at quarterback slow going on offense and man, the the practices in the early Wade Phillips as defensive coordinator years, they were tough practices, man. And I was used to seeing Matt Schaub and Sage Rosenfels, etc., in the Kubiak era pre-Wade Phillips just torch the defense in OTAs I, I mean that should have been really uh, an, an indicator that the Texans might struggle on defense because the offense just had their way all day long all practice all year long with the defense most of those years until Wade Phillips arrived to be the D coordinator it was a wonderful thing for Kubiak's career to have Wade Phillips come here as the defensive coordinator the high watermark for defense in the Kubiak era pre-Wade Phillips was 2009 when the D finished 13th in the league and had some pro bowlers had Mario Williams and D'Amico Ryans and Brian Cushing all go to the pro bowl that year that was pretty cool stuff uh, and again that 0-9 team we always talk about it had they gotten in and they would with today's format of seven teams getting in from each conference had that 0-9 team gotten in they could have made some noise in the postseason. Nobody would have wanted to play them. They were really peaking at the right time of year. They went four straight going into the uh, offseason, as it were, for them. But it would have been the postseason had you gotten the seven teams in. Okay, so that's what jumped out to me in the '09, 9 even 2010, 9 8 those years of OTAs where you had Schaub and Rosenfels. Rosenfels, not even up until 9 he was done, right? But, oh, yeah, '09 9 was Dan Orlovsky, that 's a training camp story when Rex Grossman comes in here and he wins the job away from Dan Orlovsky in the final preseason game, but we 'll save that for uh, training camp stories when we get to that podcast later on this off season all right let 's go before that now. What stands out to me about oTAs back in the capers era back then well let 's start from the very beginning because When I got this job as Voice of the Texans, it was February 2002. I came here for the expansion draft for a few days, and then I went back to Miami, packed up, and I got here for early April. And I remember early April, mid-April, going into the practice bubble at the Houston Methodist Training Center, and I believe it was Charlie Caserly and Tony Wiley who brought me in there. And there it was a full-blown pre-draft practice because the Texans were an expansion team. The rules were such that, yes, you could practice early. But there was no David Carr yet. They hadn't had the draft. There was nobody. There was no Chester Pitts, no Jabbar Gaffney, none of those guys, no Fred Weary. It was Ben Sankey at quarterback. I mean, there were people there who some made the team. Some did make the squad. Mike Quinn was around. uh, But that was kind of interesting. And I I bring that up because, again, this is the OTA podcast. And I remember that about off-season practice. Practice. then you had the expansion draft and the draft actually i should say this the expansion draft guys were there of course because they were acquired uh, february 18th 2002 but none of the college draft choices that i mentioned previously were there and then after the college draft you got all those guys in the flow and they were participating in otas and Charlie Caserly was wonderful uh, for the media. I remember sitting down with him, and he went over every player on the roster with me, just sat down, went over them all to describe strengths, weaknesses, what they were looking for out of those guys, uh, likelihood of making the team because they had a roster that it felt like 150 guys were on this roster in the expansion year. Uh, Year two, Andre Johnson rookie camp. With quarterback Dave Ragone, fellow rookie. Ragone was a third-round draft choice. Now, Dave is the passing game coordinator for the Chicago Bears. Just saw him at the Combine recently. Dave's a great guy. And obviously, the pro career did not work out according to plan. But good for him having a coaching career in the NFL And Dave was the quarterback for Andre Johnson's rookie camp, and he's a southpaw. And I remember Andre having some drops, and you've heard this story probably. And he talked about the left-handed quarterback throwing him the rock and how it was just a little bit odd and a little bit more difficult to catch. So that stands out about year two. Year three, 2004, you finally – get the feeling that some good things might happen to this football team. And they did in 2004. And a lot of people thought they were going to make that jump to a playoff season in 2005. And most of the off season stories that I have about those years, they're really about training camp more than OTAs. You know, again, I want to keep this podcast to OTA topics. I'll zoom forward a bit. Kubiak's first year. You see Carr out there in a Kubiak practice and the practices in OTAs from Capers to Kubiak did feel different. I think any new coach comes in there, and Bill O'Brien did this when he came in there, taking over for Gary Kubiak. You try to flip the culture, you try to change things. Uh, were they uh, were, were the practices a little bit quieter under Capers? I hate to use that word. I, it just felt louder with Kubiak, like more people talking and. Whether that's effective or not, you could debate that all day long. But it just seemed more intense in the OTA times. Not that Capers wasn't intense, but maybe the maybe the focus was more on fundamentals than whatever. Uh, not sure how to describe that any other way, but it just seemed different. And then when Schaub gets here in 07, acquired an offseason trade with Atlanta for two number twos and a flip of number one picks, uh, you definitely saw differences with Schaub. Throwing the Rock to David Carr. You just knew that Schaub was a better fit for the Kubiak system, and you felt like it was going to work out pretty well at that time. And you wanted to see it on the field, of course, but Schaub handled himself great early and I thought that uh, it was going to be exciting to see them them play. And remember, they opened against Kansas City in 07, the very first Schaub game. He goes 70-plus yards to Andre Johnson in a play-action pass, and that was the longest TD pass of Andre's career at the time, TD reception. The previous high was under 60 yards, so right then in game one, with Schaub throwing the rock at the Kubiak system, you felt like this is going to be fun to watch. All right, that's it for the OTA Stories That I have this time of year where we normally have OTAs. I wanted to reminisce about some of those things. Some other things on my mind. All right, I talked to my dad. Now, I talk about my dad sometimes. He's not a sports fan, he's from the Netherlands but he's been in america forever worked for twa as a pilot captain of the 747 flew 747s out of kennedy airport to rome and paris and london back in the day back in the catch me if you can type days when being a pilot was so glamorous but he he went till he was 60 and now he's 87 and he still does soaring airplanes those gliders yeah don't ask he just he's he says i'm 87 what do you want i'm just gonna do it so anyway he's he's a little bit of a daredevil but he did tell me this when this whole coronavirus thing got started he said you know he was a little kid in the netherlands when the germans invaded and occupied the netherlands and he said when they showed up we thought nah, this will be a few days a few weeks and then a few years later they finally leave and i i just when he said that to me like a week or two in and i thought Oh, boy, don't talk about years. Don't talk about that kind of change. Don't talk about that kind of seismic, historic, once every hundred or two years kind of event or situation. And I think we find ourselves in that, uh, but let's hope it ends soon or, or at least winds down to a point where we can get back to some sort of relative normalcy, the new normal, whatever that's going to be. That's another discussion for another day. But he did say something to me today that uh, that is sticking with me and and. It was about – and, again, he's not much of a sports fan, but he knows what I do. He follows the Texans through me and follows my career with great interest, clearly. But he's not really a sports fan. But I was talking about, well, I just hope we play games. I hope that the season kicks off. He said, you have to play. The NFL has to play. The people need it. This is my dad talking. He doesn't even care much except for my livelihood. But he said, you have to play. The people need sports. Sports has to get back. People need this stuff," he said. During World War II, they still played soccer in Europe. It was different. They in England they they made the divisions very regional. They broke it down to where the crowds would be smaller. They still played in England, even though there was uh, there were threats of aerial attacks by Hitler. But they were still playing soccer in England. And in Holland, they were, too. In the Netherlands, they were, too. Now, it was different. Again, they changed the format. They changed things around. They made it work. So he said that this is very necessary. And I I think I love getting the perspective of people who have been alive through some things. And, you know, my dad lived through World War II as a kid. And he said that was really big for the people to have. he He said football, meaning soccer, European football. He said to have that to look forward to was very big for the people who were enduring what they were enduring back then, being occupied by Nazi Germany. And I think that being occupied by coronavirus, he's right. People really need this. People really need sports. Look at how we rallied around the draft, the most watched draft in NFL history. Look at how we and it really was when you gather in all the digital consumption and everything else combined. And then you look at the Jordan show, right? The the last dance. Running this Sunday nights on ESPN. People are looking forward to this. Like it's Game of Thrones meets the NBA finals. I mean, it's a recorded show. We all know what happens, but we want to look inside it a little bit more and it's new. It's new, but it's old, but it's all we got. If you could give people NBA games, and and I went back and forth on this because the Biodome concept with the NBA and how baseball was talking about Arizona or whatever, but however you do it, I think at this point it is important. People need it. People need the distraction, the diversion, something else to think about, something else to look forward to besides you're getting to spend time with your family. Look, I'm not comparing this to World War II in terms of, magnitude and the suffering involved and all of that although some people are very much suffering here i don't want to get into those comparisons but world event that turns a lot of things off that that just turns the spigot off on our regular lives and makes us focus on different things things that do need to be focused on this to me is important to point out how sports are needed as entertainment, as a distraction, as something healthy for us to get through this time. All right, that's all I have for today, really. I wanted to talk about the OTAs because we're all going through that time of year right now, and I definitely wanted to mention my dad because he's my dad. He probably won't even listen to this. And remember, I've got live guitar. And I got it on the heavy fuzz today. Have a great day, everyone. Go Texans.